Hi, this is Paul Cowart, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. My guest on the podcast this week is Paul Coet. Um, sometimes I get to interview people that are in bands that I love and have made records that I really love. And occasionally I get to interview people that are in more than one band that I love and have made more than one record that I love. And this is one of those occasions. Paul will be known to a lot of you as the bass player in Punch Brothers, um, but also to a lot of you as a founder member and bass player in Hawktail as well. And Hawktail have a new record out, which is what I'm going to talk to Paul about tonight. Uh, Paul, welcome to Bluegrass Jamalot. Hi, thanks, Matt. Um, what I find fascinating about Hawktail, amongst lots of things, is the idea that you guys make instrumental music um, in a world that is largely vocal and dominated by sort of songs. You play entirely instrumental stuff, and I, I heard you talk on a previous interview and said, it. I think that you said something along the lines of, "I'm an instrumental musician, basically." Um, and I'd love to talk about that as a, a sort of starting point for the, the chat about the album, because focusing purely on instrumental music is a very different mindset. Well, uh, in some ways, that, that might be true. I mean, really, music all seems more related to me than not. And I, I certainly drive a, a lot of inspiration and study from songs, um, directly uh, apply principles from songs that I love uh, to instrumental music that I'm working on. Um, but I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm mainly a bass player uh, and an instrumentalist. I, I play other instruments somewhat, but really I'm, I'm mostly a bass player and I'll sing harmonies when I'm uh, required to. <laughs> Or, you know, I'll sing a song at a, at a party for fun. But, um, you know, the Hawktail is, uh, has been, um, my opportunity to put the instruments front and center as opposed to a, a lead vocalist. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always fascinated. Maybe it's because I'm a musician who plays, doesn't really sing, but I'm always fascinated by players who are f sort of first and foremost instrumentalists. Um, you know, there's something, people like Mike Marshall or Bela Fleck or, I don't know, Russ Barenberg, people who are known for their instrumental playing more than anything. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I guess that um, the sort of the whole landscape of, of the instrumental, bluegrass is maybe not the word really, it's sort of acoustic. There's lots of different phrases for it, acoustic sort of folk music. Some people call it acoustic chamber music, but there's been a, a kind of growing movement of that around for a few decades now with some sort of key players in it. Um, and I know right. you, I know you sort of said how influential things like uncommon ritual were to you and strength in numbers and those kind of records. And it feels like that's maybe where it's if, even if you can call it a movement where, where this sort of movement started, but there's a really interesting thread that runs alongside kind of bluegrass as we know it as a song based thing of this kind of instrumental music that is maybe slightly more arranged, maybe slightly more composed, but still very much fits in the structural mold of being fiddle tunes in many ways. Yeah. A lot of the music does. Um, uh, different artists have approached it in different ways. 
I like Bela Fleck um, is one of the really um, great inspirations in this category and um, records like drive and bluegrass sessions and stuff. Um, you know, half those, half those tunes are fiddle tunes. Half of them are banjo tunes. And um, uh, whereas, you know, you might, you know, you look at someone like Edgar Meyer and uh, the, the connection to the to fiddle tune form is like less often used. Maybe uh, he's got some fiddle tunes on his records, but um, coming at it from a different place. I mean, not 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 kind of uh, just coming at it from a different place. Um, you know, David Grisman, the first instrumental bluegrass, you know, uh, chamber. Um, group, um, David Grisman quintet, or you know, or the stuff that uh, that that group of people was doing, um, being so groundbreaking. Um, but a lot of those are are like fiddle tunes or mandolin tunes, pretty close, couple couple parts, um, circular forms. Then there's like a whole, and then, you know, like Vessen was a big inspiration for us too, the Swedish instrumental trio. Um, but it's also not all instrumental music, you know, and I guess I'm, uh, uh, a lot of different kinds of music kind of come into, come into play and, and influence what we're doing. And that sort of Vessen influence is really interesting because there's definitely, there's a very European element to the fiddle sound, particularly in Hawktail. Um, as much as an American sound, there's definitely a Northern European flavor that's very strong there as well. And I presume that's in part where that comes from. Well, Brittany Haas is in the band and uh, she's just an incredible fiddler. And um, as a lead voice, that instrument is well suited. Um, and, and, uh, she she grew up going to the Valley Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle School, Alasdair Fraser's Fiddle Camp in uh, California, where um, you know, she learned a lot of Strathspeys and Schottisches and you know, Swedish music too. It's pretty open, um, and uh, so she just has a lot of those influences in her style and. A lot of our music is geared towards accommodating that. Yeah, and so I'd be interested sort of, before we sort of get into the album in detail, just sort of talk about the other guys in the band and how you met, because it was, I believe, it was sort of through um, a workshop run by Mike Marshall and Edgar Meyer that you met them in the first place, and that's sort of how around that how sort of Hawktail started to come together. Yeah, um, I met Jordan, Brittany, and Dominic all within 2000, oh, is this 2006 to 2007 or 2007 to 2008, a short, a pretty short period of time. And, um, um, I met, uh, a, a whole bunch of people. Um, around my age, you know, plus or minus 10 years, uh, at a, at this porous borders of music, um, workshop that Edgar Meyer and Mike, Mark, Mike Marshall did. 
at Carnegie Hall. Um, I just met so many people there who were interested in the things that I was interested in. And um, I already had Brittany Haas's, uh, had Brittany's record for four years already at that point. I knew all those tunes, but I hadn't met her until then. She wasn't actually enrolled in the program, but she came, um, came to hear the concert and to hang out. Um, and yeah, uh, we, we all met at, at, uh, fiddle camps, festivals, concerts, those kinds of events. Good prior to that, were you, was that what you were looking for? Did you, cause you'd obviously studied, um, classical double bass with yeah. Edgar before that. Yeah. Were you looking for something more in the kind of acoustic folk world or did you not know that was out there at that point? I did know. I, I mean, I, uh, when I was 15, um, a bluegrass band came to my high school. I think it was through the IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association. Association, And um, it was the Knob Hill Boys, a great bluegrass band from Wisconsin, who, uh, who became good friends of mine. Um, but uh, that lit a, a fire under me to want to play with fiddles and banjos and mandolins and guitars. I loved the sound of the bluegrass band. I mean, it was the first time I really heard one in a room. And just the sound of that live in front of you is mm. that's that was um, made a big impression on me. And uh, those guys were nice enough to come over and teach me tunes um, by ear. And then you have to learn them as fast as you can and keep up. And that was fun, a fun challenge. And also just, I enjoyed the music and the company. And, um, so, uh, since then I, I kind of just kept on, uh, I found Edgar's music and, um, and through Nickel Creek, you know, I found the various things that Chris Thiele had done and, um, became aware of Sam Bush and Bale Fleck and Hot Rise and Strength of Numbers and all the things that I love so much. And, um, and kind of kept that, uh, kept that going, kept that with me where I, where I was going, you know, when I went to Curtis and found a mandolin player named Bryce Milano and we used to play together. Um, and I, and besides that, you know, I mean, to, to kind of broaden the musical scope here, I mean, I, I was also, you know, playing in jazz quartets and stuff as soon as I started playing bass when I was nine and, um, and had a rock band. I played like a Fender jazz bass and, um, uh, and when I was at Curtis, there were, uh, uh, some musicians interested in jazz you know, we could play with students from a nearby school who were enrolled in a jazz program. And, and, uh, the percussion department at Curtis was, um, filled with, uh, interest for, for jazz and things like it. Presumably so, if you started playing the bass at the age of nine, there were a lot of people knocking on your door looking for a bass player because nine year old bass players are probably pretty rare. Um, well, uh, I guess that's right. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was, I kind of attribute that to my transition to being primarily a bass player. I was a violinist first, but it was, it was fun to start playing in a rock band and playing in a jazz group and being creative and social uh, alongside musical, 
you know, as, as a violinist, I was practicing in a room, you know, that was most of my experience as a violinist at that point. And, and bass was like, Oh, now I get to hang out with some people my age and play this kind of music and that kind of music and do whatever we want. <laughs> I think that's one of the incredible things about playing music as a kid is that once you get out of your bedroom, practicing and you meet people and you get put in different situations and it takes you all sorts of places you never get to go it's a it's a remarkable thing to experience as a kid yeah it's a sense of agency you can make things happen and find things on your own um and you know you can do that as a violinist and a fiddle player it's just easier as a bass player everybody yeah, wants yeah. a bass player <laughs> and so presumably sort of at curtis sort of learning and interacting with Edgar there, he was a re remarkable sort of role model for maybe how wide the bass could go and the fact that it could be considered a melody instrument in a, a sort of more folk kind of environment. And maybe, you know, I don't know if that was uncommon at that point or if that was, but he certainly seems to shine out around that time as sort of creating a new role for the bass in acoustic music. Oh, my Lord, yes. I mean... I can't, uh, I'm just constantly in awe of him. He's a, a very, a very constant source of, um, inspiration and, uh, motivation. I mean, he seems to be, seems to have, uh, pretty wide ranging tastes in terms of, you know, like oh, yeah. I guess going back to the beginning and I sort of said to you, is instrumental music a different mindset? And you basically said, no, it's just all music really. And he seems to cast his net far and wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a in a pretty noteworthy to a noteworthy degree, like compared to the to a lot of a lot of people that I also look up to. I mean, he's all over the place with you know bass concerto, several bass concertos, um, you know, chamber music, uh, playing with a bluegrass band. Um, you never know. Playing with Sakir Hussein. So, so as things kind of developed and you met, well, Hawktail originally started out as a trio, didn't it? It wasn't all four of you originally. Um, That's Hawktail, right. Hawktail, as we know it, it's, it's a four piece, but you were, you were a trio before that. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, uh, a, a natural, a natural combination. Um, Jordan and Brittany and I are pretty, pretty close to the same age. We're uh, born within a year of each other. And I think that's about right. I think about born within a year and Dominic's just a, a few years younger, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the moment I heard each of them, I remember, you know, I just, um, Oh, that's, that's really, that's somebody I'd like to work with. That's somebody who I, who we could, we could do some fun stuff. And, um, and then we did, you know, we, throughout college, um, Jordan and Brittany and I were in the same vicinity going to college and Jordan had a car. So, um, he, he would pick me up in Philly and we'd head out to Princeton to see Brit and play tunes and Bjorgland tunes, Vesson tunes, some of Jordan's uh, um, original music and um, kind of just kept it alive. And did, 
Did it feel like you needed a fourth member and you found somebody, or did you sort of meet Dominic and think we need him? Because the more I listen to you guys talk about music and the more interviews I read and the more sense I get of what Hawktail is, it just strikes me overwhelmingly that Hawktail is a combination of four specific people, and that's how you see it. It's a sort of a confluence of four individual musicians. It's not... It's very much about the actual people in the band. It's not just four people who have to play those instruments. It feels like a very personal connection. Yeah. I mean, at, at, I would hope so. I, um, at, at its best, yeah. Everybody hopefully you know, shines as the individuals that they are. Um, and uh, it's a unique. Oh, what unique is not? Well, I've come to appreciate more how everybody brings a a sort of different angle to it, and I think that strengthens it. Um, everyone everyone has different um, particular assets, and um, they come together to balance each other out and something better than any one of us could do on our own. It's one of the, I think that's, that's really interesting. It's one of the themes that feels like it's developed through doing these interviews. It's just the idea that your job as a musician is to be as uniquely you as you can. And we all start out trying to sound like other people and thinking there's a certain way we should sound. But actually your job as an artist is to be, to be you because nobody else can do that. And so, that sort of development of personality, I think, is always a fascinating thing. And it and very much sounds like with Hawktail, even though there are no kind of voices, he says, doing air quotes, that nobody's going to see because this is a podcast. But you all have very distinctive voices on your instruments, and that's it, it shines through really clearly. Great. I'm happy about that. You know, I mean, I guess it's, uh, it's not even like a... Uh, I'm trying to think if that was even, if that was ever really a stated goal or if it was just a natural result of, um, of chasing the things that we knew each other was capable of. Um, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if Brittany did, did a solo like this, where like there's this, um, ostinato in the guitar and the bass makes interjections, but she is free to play any rhythms, phrases she wants with a note cluster. Like I've never heard her do that, but I can hear it in my head, you know, cause I, cause I know how she plays, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, that comes from a familiarity with each other's style. So presumably also playing the way you do and as the, players you do you've maybe got a bit more freedom and variety of roles than you might do in a traditional string band so i'm particularly thinking of bluegrass where the individual instruments sort of have a predefined role within the ensemble um and in some situations you don't get stretched beyond that particularly but just listening to you know listen to the new record um and hearing you sort of pass melodies around or combine differently to make different textures and stuff it sounds like you have quite a lot of freedom on the bass, is that yeah, on I mean, the bass? You, but yes, it's, it's sort of more striking on the bass. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's been a, a 
tremendous opportunity to uh, to break out of the conventional roles of of the bass in an ensemble. Everybody, uh, yeah, I I enjoy that about it. You know, that's um, that's a big reason why I do it. I'm really sort of really keen to talk about the new record, Place of Growth. Um, it's, I was reading sort of the material on, there's a really, there's a, I'd actually urge everybody to go read this on, on the website. There's um, a little sort of essay slash interview that um, is there to introduce the record. Um, and it's pretty clear from the start that this is intended, although it's not a piece and it's, in, it's not a sort of a suite in its entirety, it's very much intended to be sat and listened to in one sitting rather than as individual songs. And the structure, the way it's put together with, you know, some that is described as wanderings, but little sketches between some of the pieces. I'd be really keen to hear how that sort of overall shape of it came about, whether that was always the intent or the pieces just sort of fell together that way. Well, the, um, it, it, writing place of growth came, came about, um, after this sort of successful arrangement of one of Lena Janssen's tunes, Antelope, which is the second track on Place of Growth, that we, uh, we en- enjoyed that, felt it was a successful musical arrangement, something we would like to go play. And um, at the time, the logical thing to do was to make some more music to accompany it not just add it to the shows that we weren't able to play at the time. <laughs> mm. So, um, uh, and my mind immediately went to, uh, these, these ideas that, um, I had recorded from 2016, um, that always, that they, they were sitting unfinished. And, um, one of the ideas, uh, became the, the theme for the wanderings. That thing. Um, and, uh, it just, it just seemed like, uh, that music and, and the music that was also written around it at that time in 2016 was enough to serve as sort of a palate cleanser between tracks and to kind of, um, make it make something uh, different than we had done before, and um, I had had I had gotten the notion, you know, a lot of times the impetus for what I want to do next comes from like a dissatisfaction with some element of the stuff that had come before. And, uh, sometimes albums, they, especially the music that we had been making, you know, we try and go for these arcs with, with our, with our music and, um, each song like takes you on a journey, but in the context of an album, I kind of felt that it, I've, I've felt in the past that some of it was like a little bit up and down and like, okay, well that ended now, what are we doing? It's like, now it's a whole new thing. Okay. Let's reacquaint ourselves with, um, you know, with with a new tune and get get familiar and go on a new journey. It just kind of felt like start and stoppy, and um, mm-hmm. um, 
And I've also, you know, uh, taken a lot of lessons from Thiele in Punch Brothers, who's just such an amazing musician um, to work alongside and, and learn from that experience. And um, All Ashore, the album that won the Folk Grammy that had come out previously, was was somewhat more uh somewhat more planned out in terms of the scope of the album while we were writing it than than others um and i started thinking about that stuff about oh what makes the ideal uh well just yeah just kind of thinking about that thinking about transition thinking about set lists, you know, set lists are sort of like, you know, similar that way. If you take the audience on a ride and you, and you sustain their interest for a longer period of time. Anyway, uh, I'm blathering a bit on that, but I, it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's nothing particularly new. Everybody making an album wants it to be cohesive and keep your attention, but this just seemed like the way to do, to do it in this instance. And, um, and it was fun. It was like, Oh, what? it was kind of feel like, uh, theatrical, you know, to have these <laughs> things between tracks. And, um, in some instances it kind of, uh, uh, well, and it guided the whole process of the writing of the rest of the material, um, wanting, uh, we, we knew where everything would go in the album before we recorded it. And while we were writing it, we were like writing for a specific part in the journey of the album. So, um, I think that's really interesting though, because you saw that sort of longer arc and oh, whether it was a set, they're still putting a record together or like the best performers, sort of live performers have an ability to do that is to know how to, they don't just, come on guns blazing and create a load of energy and then sustain it for an hour and then go off again. People like somebody who's amazing. This is Josh Ritter, the ability to just ride that wave of energy and push it up a bit live oh, yeah. and, and lean ahead of the beat slightly to where the band is sort of holding him back and holding him back and then letting go. And it's just an exciting thing. And anything that takes you on an arc bigger than the unit of one song is always incredibly pleasing to witness, whether it's recorded or live or, you know. Right. Yeah. And it had some kind of fun results where, um, you know, like updraft the track four has like, uh, a, a key change to the, uh, to half step above the tonic that it really makes sense because of where the song began coming from the wandering before it. And, um, if you don't hear, the music that precedes the downbeat of track four, you might not have the context to understand that key change later and what, what it's referencing. Um, but it, uh, you know, just the fact that we start the track four in the key of C major coming out of, uh, those E notes held at the end of track three, Mm. um, a key of E major. And then the end of the bridge is an F 
tonicizes F major briefly. And so then we just stay in F and then hit D flat. And it's the same move, just up a half step. And so it's like the same one you heard a while ago, but even elevated slightly. And um, it's fun stuff like that resulted. And that's something I've heard you talk about um, at one point or another. It's just the idea of music as uh, like... The, the constant thing with music of trying to introduce new ideas yet keep some familiarity. And I guess that's maybe the role of the role form or structure plays in a lot of music is to balance new material with familiar material. So you're constantly allowed to take the ear somewhere new without people feeling completely lost and no idea where they are. Um, and I guess structure can, can do quite a lot of the work there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's in a nutshell, like just, um, trying to uh, set up expectations and then and then surprise people, and but uh, yeah, keep them interested. Yeah, and it's, I, I, I was sort of thinking about this quite a lot because I've you know I've chatted to a few other people. I've talked to Chris Eldridge before, and he sort of talked about punch punch how he thinks pretty arranged. And I interviewed Wes Corbett. Um, fairly recently as well, who's, you know, involved in this kind of acoustic chamber music kind of, and it just got me thinking about the structure of fiddle tunes that might have an A part, a B part, a C part. Some of them might get a bit further down the alphabet than that, but it's all about that. And, and I thought, well, how is that different to, you know, chamber? But I guess so many classical forms in a particularly in a sort of suite where dance moves like a minuet or a, you know, a bore or whatever, they're, they're, they're almost just a different kind of tune structure for the sake, you know, that I, I might not be making total sense here, but a lot of the classical forms in the suite are actually relatively similar to, you know, you talked about some of the, the Hawktail tunes being a shot each or a specific form that I wouldn't necessarily know listening to it, but having that sort of structure there can give you something to hang things off. Sure. Um, sometimes, yeah, it really runs the gamut in Hawktail. We've we've got two part fiddle tunes that are a circular form, and it never breaks. That's like basically a fiddle tune, and um, we've got uh, um, well, yeah, just it's a variety, and. It, on place of growth is you have probably uh, a little more influence of like sonata form kind of uh, ideals than ever before, like in the arrangement of Antelopin and uh, Big Sun, the last track in particular. Um, trying to think, I mean, I, I don't know if we ever. I don't know if we ever like set out to like make something a specific form, but that's a part of, of, you know, what we're thinking about while we're writing it and just trying to resolve the various tensions at play. Um, but I don't, I don't know that we ever set out to fulfill a specific form. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody does that. Probably nobody does. I don't know. 
yeah. And and so one thing that feels so there's quite a lot through place of growth. There's quite a lot of modulation and quite a lot of harmonic sort of sensor shifting. And I guess that's something that's simpler to do if you don't have to accommodate a vocalist. Um, and then in pomegranate in the oak tree, it's much more, as this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, really about that sort of the journey and the arc of something. And then after quite a lot of movement, having something quite right. settled, you only get to experience that having had some of the movement in the previous tunes, like it takes its place within the whole, as opposed to, you know, otherwise it's just a piece of music as it is. But if you've heard it in the context of what came before, it's got a totally different right. effect. Totally. Yeah. I think that's probably, um, yeah, definitely meant, meant for this to be heard as a whole. Um, yeah. And I, I'm trying, as you say that, I'm, I'm trying to think if like, any one track on its own would fall short as a result of that aim. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I like, I, I just, I don't know. I was just going to say, it sort of reminded me of what you were talking about earlier with the individual members of the band sort of creating something that is bigger than the sum of the parts. And it feels like, I don't know, I haven't tried listening to the record on shuffle, but I imagine each of those tunes works perfectly well as a tune in its own right. But if you experience them in that order, then the context brings out a slightly maybe more elevated or just different yeah. experience. Which is, you know, like a like any track order for an album or a set list or or something. It's just this one we put a little more design into it than than usual. And is it something that you will play as a, a sort of whole when you tour if you get a chance to tour it? Yeah. Yeah, we've done that uh quite a bit. Um already um let's see we i'm thinking most of the gigs we've had this year which is not that many we don't play a whole lot um i think we've played it all the way through in most of them yeah which is fun and i don't have to think about what to say for a little while Yeah, and I guess that's. It's, I, I'm presuming you don't get to, to gig a huge amount because you're all you've all got other projects going on. Some of them, which are you know, obviously Punch Brothers yeah. have got a big year this year, and and um, Dominic's touring with Molly Tuttle, and those you know they're yeah they're busy things to be involved with. So presumably, it's it's a case of fitting gigs in as and when you can. Yeah, um, it's. Our primary motivator has been to make the best music we can make and enjoy. Well, I guess, I guess anybody would say the same thing. There's a little, I, I hope to play with th this group of people for as long as possible. Um, you know, we never really, we don't have management. We never said we want to play as many shows as possible and try and win the circuit get high, you know, as high fees as possible and just like crush and like get as many fans, you know, we just never, uh, we never did that. Um, there's a little bit of a motive, uh, for, uh, longevity via scarcity. There's a little bit of that going on. Yeah, and if you took those choices to increase your audience in that sort of intentional way, 
I guess that that means something about the kind of venues you play and how you have to go about that. And you know, it, it's incredibly uh, intimate music that that deserves you know a that deserves listening to. It's you know, not, some music is about experiencing the energy of your life as much as the listening, and some of it is very much about sitting for a moment and and sort of hearing something. Yeah, it's been it's pretty cool that way that it's, it's been fun to play in house concerts on amplified. Um, but also rock clubs. Um, you know, we, we really use, uh, the guitar on a microphone. Um, we, the, the band has fun when the guitar is loud, I think, you know, uh, and so, I mean, we've had great shows in clubs, but I, you know, I also, I, I do dream of getting into some of the most, you know, the more beautiful halls and putting the microphones a little further away. And, um, and we, we've gotten to do a little bit of, of that kind of stuff. Although, um, we, we stay with our concert rig with our, our pickups is like slightly in there and it's a good sound. Like the band sounds uh, sounds good with our rig the way we have it at this point, but at some point it'd be fun to play um, in a pristine hall with beautiful microphones only. And, um, but um, yeah, in yeah. terms of the audience, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it is kind of listening music. Uh, <laughs> so wherever that happens is probably the best. It's it's really interesting to sort of see the because this this year this past sort of year particularly, um, just seeing the impact that Baylor Flex, my Bluegrass Heart project, has had in terms of just how and obviously you were involved in that you played on several tracks on that, um, which like on on one hand just being on a record with some of those musicians that sort of started out your journey in this music must be incredible to be part of. But it's also put that idea that you can, you know, release a long, instrumental, complicated album and the world is clamoring to hear it. I mean, there's... Uh, just... How do I think about this? I mean, uh, Bela and, and Edgar, who we've mentioned earlier in this conversation you know they're they were early arrivers at the telluride bluegrass festival and and rocky grass and um and those are places that i've always imagined the music as we were writing it just imagining how it would uh feel to to hear it performed and hear and see it performed in those places and um uh think about I, I think about the people who who would enjoy it the people I know already who I can imagine who I can picture you know how how would this how would they experience this musical moment um, and uh, and so there there is a, a um some groundwork and inspiration and just, you know, laid by, by those people, people who came before us. 
and who are still making incredible music. Yeah, and it's this, I don't know, but like I might be sort of romanticizing this slightly, but there's definitely a sense with the Baylor record that, you know, Baylor's consciously gone off and taken the banjo into places that other people didn't want it to go. And that's been almost a mission statement of his. But the idea that he comes back to this sort of more bluegrass or structured stuff after stuff. There's a sort of also a, a sort of element of homecoming about it, which makes it joyful in its own way. And it just, just the amount of, you know, I don't know how long he intended this tour to go on for when he started it, but it feels like this album's just run and run. And it, it says something quite exciting about the appetite for instrumental acoustic music. Because alongside that, there's people like you guys and, and Wes Corbett, and there's, there's a really strong seam of, of that kind of whatever you want to call it, sort of chamber folk music or whatever the, you know, the phrase would be, but it's, it's alive and it's, and it's healthy and you're right in the middle of it. It's a, uh, not something I take for granted. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know who all would like our music. I, I, I would hope that people who had never been, to a bluegrass festival would like it, you know? And, um, you know, like my, uh, I also think about like how my parents would hear it. You know, they, they never went to bluegrass festivals. That wasn't their, their musical background. Um, but, uh, um, Yeah certainly there was a lot of common ground between the four of us around the music that those heroes have made. Uh, and that is no small thing that, that puts people together, you know, it's like, um, uh, we can actually do something together. We can play the Phoenix. We can play this Anne Bjorglien tune, um, because we're all, we all know it. We all really like it. And, uh, we know that tune because we also like this music and uh, we met people who like that music and they told us about that music. And, you know, uh, it's hard. I'm, I'm probably getting not very clear about it, but it brought us together. You know what? What you wouldn't want it to be confining. You're always I'm, we're always we're always trying to find, um, you know, sources of inspiration from anywhere in, you know, Right now, I mean, I would probably say that I'm listening to more Mozart than anything. And Jordan um, went through a, lo a long REM period, <laughs> you know? Um, it's it's not limited, but it, undoubtedly, the music that we're speaking about brought us together. And it's, I think that's the classic thing, really, isn't it? Is if when you see an advert of people putting a band together, they list the kind of music they like because they're looking for people who get get what they get mm -hmm. and it's, it's it's sort of your starting point for a conversation almost isn't it you look for things you've got in common and then you go and see what you've got that's your own that you can take from that and you all bring different bits in but it's just i think it's a joyful thing when you find a bunch of people who you share a thing that you share particularly if it's not a massively mainstream thing it's like oh these are my people i found a place well and it's really cool that there is a precedent in that music for individual style and encouragement of that you know so that we can the folk element of it that, you know, we can get together and play that tune, but we're not like having to play a specific part 
you know, there's something more, uh, uh, something less specific that holds it all together an energy and, uh, and someone's got to render the tune, you know, um, but we can do whatever we want with it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not just like even like a mission statement. So we could actually get together and like get the instruments out and j- jam. And then we're playing and it's the sound of us, even though we're playing someone else's you know music. And that's a real, um, uh, I'm just so grateful that that happened. I'm so curious. That's really interesting. So to, to sort of, to understand like what, uh, you know, you need to percentage on it, but uh, I'd, I'd be really interested to get some sense of how much of Hawktail's music is pre-arranged and how much of it happens sort of in the moment around, you know, a structure of stuff that is there already. Um, it's, uh, well, the way Hawktail, if I had to describe it, you know, like I think of, Vessen as a model, you know, not directly related to what we do, but just in terms of what we're speaking about to contrast it with something mm-hmm. else like Olaf, the nickel Harpa player um, is like, you know, a lot of the time diligently rendering the melody, which drives the tune <clears throat> and Roger uh, when they were a trio would um, be pretty unhinged and throwing different bass notes in all the time and, um, and shaping improvisatory like uh, shapes over, over periods of time in the music. And, you know, maybe this, now we're going to get real quiet and I'm going to like build, 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 build through the downbeat. Bam. You know, that's just like something he decided to do that time. And, uh, and then Mikhail in the middle, like, threading the needle for, for both, you know, like staying anyway. So that's like them. Uh, it, it is what it sounds like to me. And, uh, I don't know. Hocktail is, um, it kind of depends on the tune. Sometimes you'll hear music that sounds improvisatory and it's not like it. It's, the whole setup is as if like the band um, reforms in a role that supports a soloist and this, and the soloist gesture is like <clears throat> extemporaneous sounding, you know, but it's actually kind of composed because it needs to fulfill that a certain function in the song. It gets hard to talk about that. Um, the difference between what's composed and what's not is hard to ever really say, you know, in my mind now, as I'm talking about Mm. this, I'm thinking about the first miles quintet, miles Davis quintet. And like thinking about, uh, I think some of those same things I just described are in in play there. Yeah. It's interesting. Just, I heard um, one of the tunes, which tune was one of the tunes on the new record. I think it was Updraft, and Dominic was saying that he played a particular solo in the studio, which then ended mm-hmm. up influencing the way the tune was arranged when he recorded it, because it, it wasn't something particularly planned, but it came out and he was like, well, I have, well, I have that. Well, like, what can we do around that? The secret is it actually, 
influenced the way it came together while I was editing it. <laughs> so it it kind of it was it was deep there, deep in the takes was a uh, well. What happens if Dom just takes a longer solo? You know, mm. and because um, previously it had been more fiddle dominant, but in retrospect, it just makes all the sense to have it. Really turns into a more of a mandolin feature as a result. He states the first melody, and um, it's suitable that then he takes the longer solo than everybody else. It just kind of makes logical sense, and it helps the album because Brittany was already the lead voice of Antelope. And, and, um, and I heard that take, and at first it was like, oh, that was just a great solo. And like the band is good. Jordan and Britt and I are like, uh, it's nice. And... Um, and then, uh, the, yeah, the arrangement kind of shifted around that a little bit and, until it's it, it arrived at its final form in the editing room. Yeah, it's really interesting because particularly, so I presume this record wasn't produced by anybody outside the band. You did it all yourselves. That's right. Yeah, we Brittany and I took uh, the lead production credit. It, it's on the liners. It says produced by... Paul and Brittany with Hocktail or something like that. Presumably, like you, you record everything live. Um, so if you're in the moment making the music, that point when you sit and listen to the playback, stuff must come out that you just haven't noticed in the room. Yeah, for sure. It's it all feels like an exploration. So if I'm not getting surprised, then what's the point? Um, yeah, there's, uh, leaving, leaving the door open so that something unexpected can happen and surprise, surprise us. And then hopefully we're, uh, present enough to catch it. Um, whether that's while we're in the tracking room, another anecdote that comes to mind is on pomegranate and the oak tree, the night before we tracked that song, we rehearsed it, and Jordan was like, "Ah, this sucks. Um, like it's it's not working right." And he like kind of went off and sat down with his guitar for for a minute, and like was like, "Let's let's change the key of the A part because the A part used to be in G minor, G minor, and then he changed it to D, and." Um, and we all did our thought about that a little bit and did some arranging and stuff. But first what happened was Jordan and I got on the microphones uh, because that's just where our instruments were. And we were, okay, let's see what it sounds like in D and uh, Dominic and Brittany were somewhere else. And Jordan and I were kind of just playing through it in D and, um, and the next, and this was late at night. And then we kind of decided on an arrangement and went to bed. And the next day we came back to record it and we did some takes and we went back in the control room and listened to our beginnings, which had everybody playing. And we weren't totally satisfied. We kind of listened back further. Let's hear take three, take two, take one. And there was some more music before it, which was from last night. And it was just Jordan and I playing sleepily. And um, Dominic said, 
hey, that sounds pretty good. That might be the best texture for that, for this part of the song. And so then we did more takes just as a duo. Um, and actually in the editing room, it just turned out that the best take was that one from the night before that we didn't even think we were recording, but Dave Cinco had pressed record. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that ends up happening on Hawktail Records. <laughs> And I love the opening to that track. Um, like one of the things I noted down before this conversation was just that listening to that opening texture where it is just a basic guitar and then the sort of fiddle and the mandolin come in and take over and then you all kind of join together. It's a lovely, there's a, there's a certain space to it that particularly the concept of the other stuff, there's something very different about that. It's not sort of, doesn't poke you in the ear and it doesn't sort of stand up and announce its difference, but it's just a, just a new texture amongst all the stuff that's gone before. And it really sort of grabbed my ear the first time I heard it, that, that particular section. Wonderful. Yeah. There's not a whole lot that, that it's pretty simple music in, in, in that moment. So the, the trade-off from deep bass and guitar to like the two higher voices and, uh, yeah, we like stuff, you know. Uh, yeah, it sounds good. I'm glad you liked that. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's one of the things that I like about acoustic music, whether it's listening to a string quartet or a, you know, a singer or a string band or whatever. It's just that um, the sense of space in music that I think, particularly with so much of what comes out of the radio, is designed to fill every space and to be like a wall of sound and just be this big compressed thing that slaps you around the face, which is exciting in its own way. But I listen, listen back to some of the records that I love from the seventies, like Fairport Convention, Legion Leaf, or I don't know, television's Marquee Moon. And there's space, like yeah. they're quite small sounding instrumental sounds individually. And there's space between them. The drums are fairly dead. The guitars are a little bit wiry and it sounds great because there's enough space around them to see what they are and hear them in a place rather than just, everything's coming out to speak at the same time. And this acoustic music tends to do that because it has to. That's a astute observation. And, um, uh, one thing I've come to realize over time is not, is that that, that mindset that you describe of, of seeking that actually kind of begins before, the notes are written. Um, you know, it's not a question solely of how you EQ the instrument after it's recorded. It's really, uh, mm. um, you know, so, uh, to, to demonstrate the point, um, somebody might say, Oh, well, that's just such a great guitar tone on, um, I, I'm hesitant to give an actual example uh, uh, from that is, could be referenced. But what I mean to say is that like someone might say, oh, that's just such a, such a great guitar tone. And it's like, well, the guitar is playing bell like single note tones. They, those sound great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like a beautiful sound to hear a guitar make a bell tone and just let the sound that envelops 
the five seconds of your consciousness be completely determined by natural decay of a string. That's a beautiful sound. And it would be beautiful if you put a 57 on it. It'd be beautiful if you put a, you know, you know, U89 on it and, and had it through $177,000 worth of gear, you know, it's like, um, yeah. I, mean, I, I remember a few years ago, somebody gave me a recording of some, I don't know, like Buddhist bells of some kind. And it was just one bell being struck that took minutes to die out. And they said, just mm-hmm. sit and listen to it and wait till the note's gone. Right. And you sit there. I mean, the idea of it was it was a meditation practice, of course. But but I'd never really, i just hear, hear one exactly bell-like thing, as you say, and then hear the, the note decay all the way to nothing. It's like um, there's something incredibly... Like, oh, well, I've forgotten how to use my ears. I've suddenly remembered what my ears do. Uh-huh. And it can be incredibly meaningful experience just hearing one or two notes as opposed to, you know, like tasting one or two tiny bits of food rather than having a meal. Uh-huh. And just sort of sharpens your senses in a way you forget to use them in that way sometimes. Right. I love that. <laughs> And there's something that, um, and I'm going to put some links to this in the show notes, because you did a series of short videos called, I think they're called Spotlights, where you, each of you talks about one of the tracks on the record. Um, yeah. And, and they're really, they're great, because particularly, I think, with instrumental music, like when you first listen to new music and it's got lyrics, there you go, you've got something to hang on to and something that tells you what's going on. And most pop music has first chorus, middle eight, you sort of know where you are. But to have the four of you sort of give us a little guided listening experience almost, just point out some interesting things to go. And I found that really sort of deepened my enjoyment of the music. And um, Wonderful. there's something lovely about having a little guided listening experience. You know, there's not enough of that. I love, I love having my ear directed at a particular thing, you know, like somebody going, look, listen to that, listen to that. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, in bringing people, I'm trying to remember how you phrased it just now, uh, deepened your enjoyment of it. Um, and that's, that's the most I could hope for. Um, it, uh, I like sharing the, the stuff behind the music. You know, I, I enjoy that as long as I don't have to think too hard about packaging it. You know, I just, um, I like teaching, you know, I really enjoy like master classes and lessons and stuff. Um, I like sharing. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of this music, you know, and I think those, those, uh, so, um, Yeah. And I, I don't really, you know, these days it's like you release a record and you have to like put content out and stuff. And I just, I, I wanted, um, I'm just kind of always trying to make the stuff that I, um, I'm asking for your attention for (laughs) to be valuable, you know, to be, uh, actually enriching or, or, um, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there right now. A lot not coming at us. It's a noisy world. And that's the thing. If you're going to tap somebody on the shoulder and ask their attention, you really want to think about what 
you then, when they turn around and go, yeah, what do you want? You need to really think about what it is that you've got to give them because the, everybody's trying to get our attention all the time at the moment. And, and I think it's one of the beautiful things about the record is not only is it the kind of music that rewards attention and quiet sitting and listening, but it, the more you do it, the more it rewards it in a way. And, um, right. And, and I want to feed that, you know, that's exactly right. And I, and I, I, I um, it, it's sort of, you know, they're called padiddle spotlights. They're hosted by, they're create produced, hosted by the label, which is me and the people who helped me, Brittany, Jordan so far, but you know, we've got several artists on there and more coming. Um, but, uh, that was my, my thinking was, is just that if, you know, uh, maybe that would speak to people who do like this music that they would, if the label can kind of represent that you're going to, uh, you're going to get out what you put into this, you know, something like that. Yeah. And you know, you say you love to, yeah, and you send your love teaching and your love sharing, and this is sort of essentially why I do this is that I'm fascinated in processes and how people get. So you know, you hear the, it's like I'm, it's the same. I love listening to interviews with novelists about how they write. I love listening to interviews with musicians. I love just hearing the myriad ways people sort of go through their processes to create a thing, whatever that thing is, and um and the thing you've created is beautiful. It's a, it's a lovely record. And I just hope it, it gets, I hope it gets heard. I hope it's, you know, I hope you get a chance to get it out there as much as possible. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah. I mean, um, mainly I'm just happy that I'm happy with the album. Um, I guess that's a slightly privileged outlook, but, uh, uh, I hope I hope other people find some enjoyment from it. And that's that's the right order, right? Because if you try and second guess what other people want and then they don't like it, then nobody's happy, right? So you've got to be happy with what you've done before anybody else is. Yeah, never un- underestimate your audience. <laughs> they they usually seem like they're a step ahead of me, honestly. So it sort of feels like we've it's a nice place to think about wrapping this up now but what what sort of next for Hawktail is it have you got more sort of plans or is it have you are you now all sort of off to other projects and coming back to this later um we're we're gonna play some shows here and there um but we are focusing on other projects in the meantime um everybody's got stuff going on mm-hmm. and um I guess I I always hope that the over I never I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> don't think does. It always reminds <laughs> me of eggs for some reason. <laughs> um, that that you know will bring us back together um, uh, periodically. You know I I I just kind of always want to keep checking in and seeing what we can do next and at the in the meantime we're we're focusing on some other things but we'll be out playing every once in a while cool well thanks so much for taking the time to have this chat i really enjoyed it thank you matt same thanks for doing this
Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.